0: I cannot testify with absolute confidence to its accuracy, but I want to read a list that was passed on to me a while ago that claimed to be an original document from the 1950s. Uh, supposedly, this was found originally in a home economics book, and it's supposed to prepare young women for married life. Some of you have seen this list, I'm sure. Uh, here are ten ways that women, women who lived during the era of June Cleaver... Uh, should serve their husbands, especially when they come home. Here's the list. Number one, have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal on time. This is a way of letting him know that you have been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. Most men are hungry when they come home, and the prospects of a good meal are part of a warm welcome that is needed. Number two, prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you will be refreshed when he arrives. (laughs) Don't let dinner burn. Touch up your makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair and be fresh looking. He has just been with a lot of work weary people. Be a little happy and a little more interesting. His boring day may need a lift. Number three, clear away the clutter. Make one last trip through the main part of the house just before your husband arrives, gathering up school books, toys, paper, etc. Then run a dust cloth over the tables. Your husband will feel he has reached a haven of rest and order and it will give you a lift too. Number four, prepare the children. Take a few minutes to wash the children's hands and faces if they are small. Comb their hair and if necessary, change their clothes. They are little treasures and he would like to see them playing the part. (laughs) Number five, minimize the noise. At the time of his arrival, eliminate all noise of washer, dryer, dishwasher, or vacuum. Try to encourage the children to be happy to see him, uh, to be quiet. Greet him with a warm smile and be glad to see him yourself. Number six, things to avoid. Don't greet him with problems or complaints. Don't complain if he's late for dinner. Count this as minor with compared to what he might have gone through through the day. Number seven, make him comfortable. Have him lean back in a comfortable chair or suggest he lie down in the bedroom. Have a cool or warm drink ready for him. Arrange his pillow and offer to take off his shoes. (laughs) Speak in a low, soft, soothing and pleasant voice. Allow him to relax and unwind. Number eight, listen to him. You may have a dozen things to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first. Number nine, make the evening his. Never complain if he does not take you out to dinner or to other places of entertainment. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure, his need to be home and relax. Number 10, the goal, try to make your home a place of peace an order where your husband can relax. Now, immediately I know two things about this list. Number one, uh, you know these things too. Number one, uh, most men in the room think this sounds pretty nice. Now, you, you don't have to be a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal or a male chauvinist to, to find this list attractive. Who wouldn't want... When they come home after a day at the office or at work, who wouldn't want the, to enter an atmosphere that has been perfectly created to make you happy and restful and relaxed? I mean, anybody here can make a list of 10 things and maybe you would give it to your spouse or your roommate or your parent and say, just take care of these things for me, please, and I'll be really happy to come home. The second thing I know about this list, though, and this this may not be immediately apparent, uh, perhaps you're going to see it more clearly this morning, is uh, that this, as attractive as this list may be, it is a a fantasy. In fact, it's a dangerous fantasy. It's a fantasy that gives you the illusion that your home is supposed to be a refuge, not a place for you to serve. Uh, This is a distortion of what God intends. For you in your role as a husband and a father, it, it might be what some people think that Christians mean when we talk about headship and submission. They might think that that's what we mean, but it's a distortion and a dangerous one at that. I have my Bible open to Ephesians chapter five, and I'm going to read from it in just a minute. But before we do that, I, I must warn you, this is one of those passages today. Um, one of those particularly pointed passages of Scripture. The Bible says that it's a mirror, that it's useful as a mirror, and some passages in particular are well-suited to hang in front of us so that we can see our faults clearly. No one likes to look for too long into their weaknesses and their failures, but if you never look in the mirror, you'll never fix what's wrong, and there's a good chance that it's only going to get worse. So, we're going to look in the mirror today at a a particularly pointed passage. Before we do that, we're going to pray, though, together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, with our Bibles open, we are now speaking to the author, and we come before you today. Uh, Father, it is, um, we don't want to talk about the things that we don't do well, and uh, it is easy to shovel guilt. Um. This is a passage that makes me uh, think about uh, my own failures, and here I am uh, teaching it. (laughs) I'm grateful, most especially today, that the authority uh, for what is said from this pulpit is, is not from my life and my perfections or my expertise, but it's from your word. So give us ears to listen. You, God, are our Father. You have the right to tell us, how things should be in our home, and we we our heads are bowed now, and we want to come before you submissively to listen to what your word has to say. Guard my tongue that the things that I say might be useful for these uh, men and women who are here today that it might um, build them up and um, by helping them see things from which they need to turn and uh, and and Help me to paint wonderfully the things they need to turn to. Uh, Guard me so that I I might not say or that they might be gracious enough to forget uh, things that would be unhelpful to them. We all submit to the one who is our Lord Jesus Christ, and we do so by giving heed to your word. Help us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to start reading in verse 15. So hear then what Holy Scripture says. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, let's skip down to chapter six, verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord." Uh, we've been in the book of Ephesians for, for some time. Let me remind you again of the context of these verses. Ephesians is a book in which Paul is describing the magnanimous grace of God, the overflowing, uh, awe-inspiring, uh, stupendous grace of God. And then he turns his attention here to telling us, telling the Ephesians and us through them, what we're supposed to do, how we live in light of this grace of God. And in particular, in chapter four, he begins to talk about our life or your translation might say walk, how you walk or how you live. And when we've gone through several of these already in Ephesians four, starting in verse one, he tells us to walk in unity. He tells us to later on to walk in holiness. He tells us to walk in love, walk in light. And then in verse 15, he says, live or walk in wisdom. And closely related to walking in wisdom before God is being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit makes us wise. And in particular, that wisdom or that Spirit filling shows up in four things that he identifies in verses 19 and 20 and 21. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. Already today, if you were worshiping in spirit and in truth, you were evidencing, giving evidence of the Spirit filling in our congregation. Always giving thanks to God the Father, number three. And then number four, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in verse 22 through chapter six, verse nine, he talks about particular relationships where submission shows up and he addresses specific segments of the congregation. And in each case, he places he speaks, first of all, to the one who is called to submit, and then he speaks directly to the one who has authority. So he talks to wives, children and slaves, and then he speaks to husbands, fathers and masters. Now, we spent a long time talking about the wives and husband pairing, and we spent last week talking to the Paul's words to the children. And today we have in verse four here what Paul says to fathers Now, what's interesting here is uh, that all of this submission is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why we prayed before we uh, began to look at this text. Uh, In ancient Roman literature, they would talk about parenting and how to parent, and they would say all you need to be a good parent is reason and a good sense of encouragement so that you can encourage. think carefully and encourage your children. That's all you need. Uh, We read the Bible and we find out that is not all we need. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. This is spiritual work. And verse 4 tells us that it's spiritual work for fathers. Why fathers here? Why does your translation, maybe it does in verse 4, say parents? It probably shouldn't if it does. It should say fathers. And the reason it says fathers is because that's the word. What's the Greek say? The Greek says fathers. There is a generic word for parents. In fact, Paul used it in verse 1. He could have used that word for parents, but in verse 4 he is talking to fathers. And the, the, the reason that he's talking to fathers, not just the word there, he is also talking to fathers because in the world that God made, the chief responsibility for raising your children lies with their father. This is the pattern, this is the consistent teaching of the entire Bible. You men bear the chief responsibility for the condition of your family. In fact, uh, this verse uses a word that I think will bring this into, in, into clearer focus. Uh, in verse 4, uh, the apostle writes, bring them up. He uses a word that's translated, bring them up. That actually is the same word that's translated in verse chapter 5, verse 29, when he's talking to husbands, And it's translated there feed. It it means to care for or to sustain or to provide for. I think that the Bible here is telling us that as a husband and a father under God, you are responsible to be a source of nourishment for your family. You do this in different ways for your wife as opposed to your children. But you, through your words, through your actions, you bring life and health and happiness and vitality to your home. You're a source of sustenance. You bring spiritual and physical and emotional and social nutrition to your family that equips them to flourish. And you bring these things most often at the expense of your own convenience and your own comfort. Um, this home economics book that talks about taking off your shoes and getting you a warm drink and lying down somewhere could not be further from what Paul has in mind in, when he writes Ephesians chapter 6. Your home is not a refuge for relaxation. It is a platform for you to serve. I want you to think for a minute. Maybe you're going to picture it in your mind. I want you to imagine the place that you work uh, maybe it's an office or a shop or maybe you work outside. Maybe it's a warehouse or a classroom or a, a construction site. Just think about where where it is that you work. And I hope for you and imagine that you find a, a decent amount of joy in in the competence that you have in that place. Maybe when you go to work, you feel in control there. Everything here at, at this at this desk of mine is where it's supposed to be. This classroom is just the way I want it. This. This space that's mine at work, I am in control and I feel competent. And this is where I uh, accomplish things, build things, make things, design things. Uh, This is where I teach things. This is where I uh, do stuff. And and probably you feel somewhat secure and happy in that, that place. You should feel that way. Work is good and it's honorable. You should have joy in what you do. But I want you to infuse your home with that same sense that that too is a place where you use your gifts and use your skills and where you bring grace and strength that, that creates peace and happiness and, and contentment. Your home is not to be a place where you're a dead weight. Maybe this helps you think about how you, how you drive home. When you're, when you're on your way home, you're probably tired. You worked hard. And you're going home and, and you think, Oh, I can't wait to get home. This day will be over. Can can I encourage you to think that that Paul says your day isn't over when you head home. In fact, this is an opportunity for you to to nourish and sustain. Maybe you need to pull over on your way. If your if your commute is short, <laughs> maybe you need to pull over uh, somewhere and 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 think about this and reflect about this. God, I'm, I'm going home and I'm really tired and I don't know what I'm going to find when I get there. Help me to to nourish and sustain. My wife, my kids, help me to do that. Uh, you're not there to be a, a dead weight. That, that's how most husbands and fathers are depicted on television. You know, They're clueless, they're crass, they're careless. They drag everyone else down. Every father on television almost is a weight on his family. Or they're a punchline for the next joke because he's careless, clueless, or crass. God's design is for you to be a source of sustenance in your home. And Ephesians 6.4 is, is here in part to tell us how to do that, how to nourish and feed and bring up your families. There, there are two ways, in fact, in this text uh, to nourish a family that I want, I want you to see this morning. The first one is more philosophical and has to do with how you think about your role as a father. And the second is, is more practical. So here, here's the first, first one here. Your fathering must be cross-shaped. Your fathering must be cross-shaped. That is, it must be informed by, it has to be shaped by, it has to be a reflection of the gospel. One of the most devastating things that you can do to your children is to lead a duplicitous life. That is, a, a hypocritical life where you claim to believe one thing and you parent in a way in, in another way. Uh, what you believe and how you parent has, has to match. I'm going to show you that from the text, but but first I want you to understand what a surprise this verse would have been to Paul's readers. Paul's original readers in the city of Ephesus would have been influenced by a number of cultures. They were at the crossroads of, because some of them were Jewish, some of them were Gentiles, uh, Greek, Hebrew, Roman cultures were all coming in at at the the same time. And what all these cultures have in common, there's significant differences, but what they all have in common is that in Greek and Hebrew and Roman cultures, the father was in control of the household. His word was law. Patriarchy was deeply embedded in Hebrew and Greek cultures, uh, but Romans, they had perfected it. In fact, in Roman law, a father had at any point in time in his son's life, at any point in time, the legal right to imprison, shame, scourge, punish, sell, or have one of his children killed. And no one could change that authority. Oh, for the good old days. (laughs) In light of that, in light of that culture, you would expect that Paul would write in chapter four: "Children, don't exasperate your fathers." Would that make sense? Would that flow nicely in the text? Paul says, "Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right." Children, don't exasperate your fathers. I'm liking that translation. Right? That that makes sense. That. that uh, uh, um, It would make sense culturally, it makes sense theologically, and and it has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? That's not what the text says. In fact, the Bible confronts us with the truth that God presumes to limit your rights as a father. And he reserves for himself the right to define the role that you play, and that definition contrary to to what we expect, it's good news that God tells us that he has the right to define what you do as a father. It's good news because our normal practice as human beings is uh, living as we do in this Genesis 3 world. We are prone to distort what God intended when he made marriages and families. That is, we parent for our own purposes, uh, with our own goals in mind, for our own reasons. This is why some of you are so frustrated as as a father. Uh, this this following of our own design is one of the chief ways. And we know that when the Bible describes us as sinners, those who have wandered away from God, our Creator, we know that it's true. When what's written in this book sounds to you. Um, uh, counterintuitive or distasteful or unappealing. It says more about your relationship with the author than your concerns with what's written on the page. Now, let me venture a bit further for a moment, if I can, while I'm going down this road. And I, I want to talk to you about two of the most popular distortions of God's good design. Ephesians 6 4 puts limits. Uh, and forms what we do as fathers. It's contrary to our preconceived notions of what a father is supposed to do. Here are two distorted attitudes. In number one, uh, the attitude, I am the king of my castle. This distortion is the product of ancient practice and uh, the distortion of God's good plans for headship and submission. This is, this distortion is actually what some people think that we Christians uh, believe. I'm the king of my castle. I get what I want. I eat the best food. I get the biggest piece of cake. I get the most comfortable chair. We go where I want to go on vacation. I decide what we buy, what we watch on television, and the role of everyone else in my house, because I am the father, is to serve me. I'm the king of my castle. Can I get an amen? No. No. <laughs> now, you do have a role in, in setting the agenda for your family, and you have a role in deciding uh, what is on television. And uh, you have a role in how the money is spent. But you don't make those decisions because you are king. You make those decisions because you are leading for the good of your family. You have authority. You may even have a chair in your house. And you receive the respect of your family. You walk into a room. Let's, Let's picture this here. You walk into the family room where your chair is. All right? And it's your chair. You know it's your chair because... It's written in the holy book that it's your chair, right? And you walk in and and your child is sitting in your chair. What happens? They should get up for two reasons, right? One, they should get up because you're their father. And under God, they owe you honor and obedience. And that's the way it is. And you teach your kids this. Secondly, though, they should get up because they know that the decisions you make throughout the day are always for their good and that you make sacrifices, unbelievable sacrifices, and they get up because, man, Dad's in the room and Dad loves us so much and he he sacrifices for us. He, he leads us. He loves us. Who wouldn't give him his chair? Now, at various points in time, what, in your family, you move back and forth between these two, right? When your kids are like, 12 to 20, they never get to this part over here where dad loves us, so we're going to get up because we honor him so much, right? You teach him, this is dad's, dad is in charge. At the same time though, you model the reason that God was wise in making you in charge because you love and you sacrifice and you serve. I'm, I'm king of my family, Not quite. Here's another distortion. Here's another distortion that I think is actually a a greater threat here. My family validates my faith. My family validates my faith. This is a particular challenge in the church, and I'm concerned about it because it leads to what I'm going to call this morning competitive parenting. It's the idea that your children exist to affirm and confirm your spirituality and your wisdom and your character. Let me tell you how this temptation works in my life and then maybe it will help you understand uh, it will ri- get it rise in, in your life, too. There are a few verses in the Bible that I really feel the weight of. Hebrews thirteen seventeen is one of them. All the elders in this church feel the weight of this verse. It says we will be held accountable to God because of those he has entrusted to our care. That is a weighty, weighty verse. There's, there's another uh, verse, though, that weighs in my mind here, uh, and it's the requirements for eldership in 1 Timothy 3. Let me read verses 4 and 5. An elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. After all, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Parenting is not just the most challenging task that I do. It is a job requirement. This is true of me. I'm going to say something that's true of me. It is not to my credit. When my children misbehave in church, and it can be a weekly occurrence, I won't name names. (laughs) I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be really good at this. What in the world are people thinking about my life? I'm supposed to have this together. Actually, I'm more concerned about this outside the church. This is the worst outreach program we have, me parenting in public. <laughs> Go to my children's school for some event and somebody misbehaves. Again, I won't name names. And, and people there know I'm a pastor and I look at them and I think to myself, they are never coming. They are never coming to this church. I wonder, I know I'm not the only one who, who wonders about this. I wonder what people think about my spiritual life based on the behavior of my children. Parenting takes every single one of the fruit of the spirit, and it takes more love and more patience and more self-control and more kindness than you have naturally. How how are your kids a reflection of your spiritual maturity, your wisdom, your, your competence? Brothers and sisters, I'll say this in stark terms here. God did not give you children to demonstrate to other people how spiritual you are. In fact, God probably gave you your children to show you how spiritual you aren't. Now, what what can lead from this, the danger that we face in in this very traditional environment where we value what the Bible says about marriage and family and about elders and the roles of moms and dads in the church, uh, the danger is that you can use your family as a display of your spiritual maturity, and soon after that, the display becomes a competition. I'm a good parent because I homeschool my children so that they don't, uh, uh, I teach them my values I am a good parent because I send uh, my Christian to the public school so they don't live up in that Christian bubble that you're raising your kids in. I'm a good parent because I sacrifice an awful lot of money to send my kids to Christian school. I'm a good parent because my children are involved in three sports and four clubs. I'm a good parent because my children bake pies for our neighbors. Well, you think you're a good parent, but I've seen what your kids do after church on Sunday, and I know what kind of parent you are. Now, I know there is a connection. We know this, right? There is a connection between parenting and a child's behavior. I'm not trying to deny that for a moment. But your children make make their own choices. And if you saddle them with the responsibility to reflect your spiritual values and maturity, you will crush them. And you will cultivate an attitude of competition in our church that will be graceless and suffocating. Now, I, I spe- I'm speaking about this for, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, this has been a part of our culture and our congregation in the past. We, we've participated in competitive parenting, and I pray that God spares us from it in the future. The second reason that I want to be clear about this, though, is because, and we've talked about this a couple of times in recent months, th- there are men and women who, who come to church, and they just come grieving over that empty spot in the pew next to them because their kid isn't, isn't here. And they're grieving over the choices that their kids made. And, and, and those parents come to church and, and they think about those empty spots and they want to go back to their kids and they want to say to them, oh, the gospel that sometimes they spoke to you was not the real gospel and you're, you're rejecting Jesus Christ and, and it's the worst choice you could possibly make. If you've been in a, in a parenting competition with somebody else, where do you go and find help and encouragement in those in, when, when things fall apart? Who do you cry with over your kids? Who offers you comfort and, and encouragement? Who, who prays with you? Viewing your children primarily as a validation of your commitment to parenting or your values as a woman, as a man, is toxic, and it will suffocate you. Now, obviously, we've gone a little bit beyond the, the specifics of this text. Remember the path that we're on here. This is a passage that limits fatherhood. God himself defines what father is, fatherhood is and, and how we do it. Acting like a king or using your children to validate yourself before others, they're distortions of God's good design of, of fatherhood. And the limiting function in Ephesians 6.4 is, is defined by these words. Do not exasperate your children. That's the limiting function. This is a command to limit how you father to these words, uh, words and actions that will not anger or will not cultivate bitterness or resentment in your children. A number of things might come to mind. Don't father by nagging, insults, sarcasm, being overly harsh. Don't embitter your children so they get discouraged, Colossians 3.21 says. Uh, Don't set standards so high that no one can possibly meet them. You will discourage your children. You will uh, embitter them. These things are true, but I think the wording of this phrase actually goes a little bit deeper, a little bit further to show us what Paul has in mind. The word for exasperate here in verse 4 shows up all over the place in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for how the Israelites provoked God. The Israelites exasperated God. And Paul says, don't anger your children like the Israelites angered God. Now, what does that mean? I think Brian Chappell is is correct. He says this means we are not to cultivate resentment in uh, that comes from actions or attitudes that are inconsistent with the faith. In other words, don't drive your children to bitterness because you say you believe the gospel, but then you father in ways that are inconsistent with the gospel. This verse is a call to father your children like God has been a father to you. He's he's echoing what he wrote in chapter 3, verse 15 of Ephesians. Fatherhood comes from God. Treat your children like you have been treated. We don't get our ideas about about fatherhood from being king of the castle or from our notions of competitive holiness. It, It comes from God himself. We father like the father. So treat your kids how you have been treated by God. Um, Ephesians uh, chapter six four says your fatherhood must be cross shaped. Now let me help you get the flavor of this with just a couple simple statements here. Uh, most of us fall into a parenting style the way you were parented when you were fourteen years old, and your mother or your father would say something to you. You would think to yourself, "I am never going to do that to my kids." And then when your kids are just as obnoxious as you are, you this is what you do exactly. Because that's the, the, pot, the pattern you fall into. It's the mold you, you fall into. I, I want you to think about that for a minute. Um, Here are some ways that God doesn't parent us. First, God does not increase our shame, He removes it. God does not increase our shame, He removes it. Do, do you parent by shame? Here are some things that parents who are parenting by shame say. What's the matter with you? Are you stupid? I'm embarrassed to be seen with you. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? This is not how we act in this family. You are shaming us. The Bible doesn't read that way. It's not the tone and tenor of the text. God, through Christ, found us in our shame and he removed it from us by bearing our shame and the guilt that it produced on the cross. Don't seek to control your children by shaming them. Or if that's all you got, if that's the only tool in your toolbox, stop telling them you believe the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that you cover up your children's sin or you minimize it or you gloss over it. You may actually need to grow in your ability to speak to your children about the root and the fruit of their sin. But at the same time, you pour the gospel in and you remind them of the gospel of the Christ who bore our shame. Pour that in. Secondly here, God doesn't motivate us by guilt, but by grace. God doesn't motivate us by guilt, but by grace. I, uh, this probably overlaps with what I've already said about shame. Here are some things to avoid. All, after all I've done for you, after all the work I have done in pouring my life out for you, this is the thanks I receive from you. This is how you repay me. You owe this to me. In contrast to that, God reminds us over and over again, I have poured grace upon grace into your life and there is always more grace for you to enjoy. He who did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us, how will you not also freely along with him, graciously give us all things. More grace, there's always more grace. The gospel that we preach is a gospel that outlasts Failure. Does your parenting outlast your children's failure? The gospel we preach overcomes sin with redeeming love. It has the courage to confront. The gospel we preach has the power to forgive. Can your children out sin your welcoming embrace? Can they fail so badly that you will not welcome them home? I'm reminded of that song that we learned a couple of years ago. Um, um, but as I ran, the words go, my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked beyond my helpless state and led me to the cross. Fathering like the Father looks beyond the helpless state of your children. Your fathering is cross-shaped. Don't speak like a Christian and parent like a pagan. Now, if you're wondering about the first steps to take in cross-shaped fatherhood, I, want to, I would encourage you to begin by comparing your go-to parenting techniques with the gospel. What do you slip into? What do you fall into naturally? What do you normally do? And how has it been compared? How does that compare to how you have been treated by God himself? My guess for you is that most of us here, this means that our discipline needs not just consequences, but it needs a lot more discussion. A lot more talking about the choices that led to the consequences. James 4 says, uh, all the fights that we have, anybody who's got a fight, the reason it comes is because of cravings inside. We want something so bad. So when your children fight, do you sit down and you say to them, you know, the reason that you're fighting with one another is because there's something that you want that's so, so much that you're willing to to hurt, yell at, fight with your, your sibling. This craving is in of itself a revelation of the fact that we're naturally separated from God. And this is going to be a battle you're facing your whole life to value God more than you value things that you're willing to fight over. More discussion. Actually, that, that talking is implied in the rest of the verse. So there's a second way to nourish your family in this text. We're going to spend less, less time here. Here it is. Your fathering must combine affirmation and admonition, affirmation and admonition. That, those, that's the concept between these words, training and instruction. Training is, is a more positive Perhaps it's more practical. Uh, it, it, um, it it speaks training is when you say to your son, your daughter, prayer is vital. So listen to me, pray training, serving God, serving other people, honors God. So serve with me. Here's here's how we're going to go serve that, That's training. God has called us to work training words. Watch me. Come and work with me. Let's work together because God's called us to that, That's training the more positive um, affirmation. The word instruction here is a bit more negative. It's often a corrective word admonition. The word has to do with influencing your mind, rescuing it from other influences. <laughs> I am never more appreciative of the idea of homeschooling than when my children come home from school and quote their classmates. What did they say? Where did you hear that? Who thinks that? And, and when you admonish them, you, you, you take those influences that they're, they're open to and you, you, you correct them, you adjust them. Uh, leading them, guiding, now not sharply admonishing, but timely suggestions. These are the priorities that Ephesians 6, 4 sets down for you. Two principles you have to consider. Every day in your parenting, in your fathering, look for ways in which you can initiate with your children affirmation, practice of the truth, and admonition, correction, shaping their thinking. And the text ends with this phrase here, verse 4, ends by saying, of the Lord. Or better yet, it could say, from the Lord. He's the source, he's the chief trainer, and your role, Dad, is to serve as a conduit through which your children learn. Uh, They learn from him through you. Fatherhood is not your creation, it's what you do under God by the Spirit, shaping them by the cross. Uh, Delmer Holbrook and his wife travel all over the country and they do um, uh, family life studies. They're, They're scientists, they're sociologists. They surveyed hundreds of children and they asked the children the three things that their fathers say to them most. Imagine here, you would ask your kids, what what does your dad say most? Do you want to know what's on the list here? Number one, I'm too tired. Number two, we don't have enough money. And number three, keep quiet. This is not what I want my children to say about my fathering. I want them to know of the magnificent grace of God, and they're going to see it as it overflows from my life into theirs. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and and there's very few words in the verse that we read, but there is a high calling, one that extends beyond, far beyond us. Father, we come before you. Uh, There are men and women in this room at various stages of the the parenting task, Um, and and most of them are discouraged about it. Um, Discouraged because their infants aren't sleeping. Discouraged because their uh, teenagers aren't talking. Discouraged because their young adults aren't following you. And, and there are parents in this room who are just weary, weary from this task. We find strength as, as you help us. We find strength in knowing that this task that you've called us to is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. Thank you that the, the patience that I have for my children is, is limited, but your Spirit who cultivates it in my life is not limited. Thank you that your kindness goes beyond mine, your self-control, the self-control you cultivate in me, the wisdom that, that you give. it. Uh, we are grateful to you for your generous bounty huh, through Christ. And we plead with you today that you would help us to lavish our children with that generous bounty, that we would speak in our homes gospel words, and reflect gospel priorities. Help us, because you have called us to this task that goes beyond what we can imagine. Thank you that you're the God who does more than we ask or imagine. And so we pray by faith and, and with hope in Jesus Christ. And together, we, God's people, say, Amen.